It is great to see you here this morning. We still have a few seats up front. So the last several weeks, I've had the opportunity to go back to the mountain up at Swanee, uh, my, my alma mater for undergraduate school. Uh, having been gone for seven years, uh, I've been away from Swanee, and it was been, it's been really good to get back. Homecoming a few weeks ago, and uh, the last several days uh, with some friends, uh, believe it or not, playing golf in these temperatures, which is uh, quite an adventure. Um, but we did well. Um, it made me think of a story when I got to Swanee uh, in the mid-80s, um, there was a fellow named Steve, and as people are wont to do, uh, they were, there were people telling me about uh, the variety of people on campus and who I should get to know and who I shouldn't, right? This is always helpful when people tell you, you know, these are the people you need to hang out with, avoid these people like the plague. And uh, Steve was one of the ones I was told pretty much to avoid, that he was um, self-absorbed, uh, probably a womanizer, um, conceited, and the list kind of went on. Well, as a naive freshman, I was like, okay, well, there's the book on Steve. So I didn't go out of my way to look for any encounters. And actually kind of watching him from afar through those lenses of what I had been told, I thought, yeah, check, check, check. He seems to be exactly what they told me he was. Um, and so I didn't give Steve much of a thought. Well, I got to my junior year in college, and um, I was struggling with just what it is to be a young man growing up, trying to figure out the academic rigor of the school, a social life, uh, which was very invitational and not that rigorous, uh, except on my body, uh, probably. Um, uh, you just the trees, you know, I, having grown up in West Texas, I would still get claustrophobic with all the trees up there. So just trying to navigate claustrophobia and academics and social life. And so I went to the university counselor and he talked to me and said, look, you're just figuring out how to grow up. There's nothing wrong with you, but I want you to come uh, to a small group of some men uh, that are facing some of these same issues, and it can help just to talk about things. I thought, great. Very first meeting, I walk in, five other young men in the room plus the counselor, and lo and behold, who do you think I saw in there? Steve. That's exactly right. Steve was in there. And so over the next weeks and months, I got to know Steve on his own terms from his own lips and his own life experience, and it turned out the things that I had been told were grossly exaggerated and, in most cases, completely false. Steve and I ended up becoming very good friends uh, over the course of the next year, and um, I, it made me think, you know, I had believed some things about Steve that formed my, the potential of the relationship that I could have with him <clears throat> without investigating them myself. Misconceptions. So, from our passage, Paul's letter to the Colossians today. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Short, succinct, but potent. Potent. Um, This is, I think, at least in my life, has been one of the most important realities that I have ever gleaned from Scripture. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Uh, There is a term out there, you may have heard it, that Jesus is the lens of Scripture. It's the the same thing. That understanding that Jesus and the Father look the same then helps me read the rest of Scripture and put it into perspective. That short verse, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's saying exactly what we think it's saying. God looks exactly like Jesus. Exactly. Exactly like Jesus. Now, Jesus will actually say it himself in these words uh, in John's Gospel. The disciples are with him and Philip, one of them says, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus says to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And actually, Everything you've seen me do and every word I have ever spoken, I don't do on my own, but my Father who dwells in me. He's saying the same thing. I am the visible image of God. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. So I'll give you one more. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews reiterates this truth. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So I'm hammering on this a bit this morning because we're celebrating Christ the King. And of course, God is one. So we begin to think, okay, well, if Christ is the King, what's his father like? And of course, if you're hearing me this morning, they're exactly alike. There is no difference. So what that means for me is Um, the things that I may believe about God in general or about the Father, if they don't line up with what I see in Jesus, I need to reevaluate my perspective. Uh, I believe some incredibly wrong things about Steve until I let Steve speak for himself. I got to know Steve on Steve's terms, and we may very well believe some... Uh, wrong things about God because we've not let God speak on for himself through Jesus Christ. For instance, anything that we might believe about God as it relates to vengeance, we have to look at Jesus and say, does this line up? Do we believe that God is a God of vengeance who's going to one day set all things right through retaliation. Well, I have to look at Jesus to begin to actually inform me of what that answer might be. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very being. Well, I mean, maybe I've missed it, but when I've read the Gospels, I never see Jesus in vengeance mode. In fact, the reading this morning is anything but. 
They're even saying, if you've got this power, save yourself and us. They're looking for a ruler who takes by force. It's what they understand. Shoot, it's what we understand most of the time. Something that is so incredible about uh, God seen in Jesus and even here on the cross, he is really, he only operates by invitation into relationship. He's not forcing us to do anything. He proclaims forgiveness on them, even though they're executing him. Father, forgive them. So again, how do we square a God of vengeance with that? It's difficult, but maybe we can. But if we're looking at exactly who God is, it's one who pronounces forgiveness in the face of our most abysmal darkness and invites us, though, into a life God, Father, Son, and Spirit simply want to share with us. That is a king worth worshiping. That is a king who will not compromise on love, even when we do our worst to him. Jesus does not show us 50 or 75 or 99% of God. The fullness of God's glory dwells in him, as it said in Hebrews. All of it. We, what we see in Jesus is who we get in God. So again, that lens of scripture, it's been so uh, freeing for me. It doesn't mean I understand everything, but I have to look at Jesus when I'm thinking about who this king is, who this God might be, what this faith is all about, what have I been called into, who am I following? You might remember Jesus refused to call down fire from heaven. I think they were going through Samaria. And the helpful brothers, James and John, were like, you know, they're not showing us the hospitality. Do us. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? They're not treating me like I ought to be treated. Uh, so why don't we call down fire from heaven and treat them a lesson? We'll show them, you know, you don't do that to me. I know you felt this way. You don't look at me like this. <clears throat> you don't treat me this way. And so, and Jesus is like, no, he rebukes them. That's, we will invite them into life, but we will not retaliate. There will not be vengeance. Jesus proclaiming forgiveness, sitting silent before his accusers, submitting to abuse and the judgments of others, I had concluded some pretty terrible things about Steve before he had the chance to speak for himself. And I actually stepped into that relationship and began to experience it for myself. That encounter and that ongoing relationship obviously reframed how I thought about him. Again, we became friends. So as we approach Advent, next Sunday, uh, and then the following Christmas season, and we are thinking about incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. 
This is, it's a reiteration of what I've been speaking about. Why does God become human? And that's a sermon series we could do for a long time. But I think at least one of the things we could say about that is God becomes human because giving us anything that's through the written word can be misinterpreted and misrepresented. And he wanted to speak for himself. And what better way to do that? I'm showing up. You want to know what I'm like? Here I am. This is me in Jesus Christ. And yet somehow we still misinterpret the whole thing. And we think things about God that just simply won't line up with Jesus. Christ the King, we see him in the Gospels. Again, a, a king who will not compromise on love. For in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself. Pleased. Okay. If I'm a God of love, I've got to reconcile all things. But this group over here, I'd prefer no. <laughs> Malone, I'd probably prefer no. Well, now, what was that about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, though. He's pleased, pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross, the blood of his cross, which speaks the witness of forgiveness, an invitation into life and a new way of living. Amen.